Good. Well, if you have a Bible and you'd like to have 1 Samuel chapter 16 open in front of you, that will help you um, to follow um, where we're going this evening. And um, I don't know how well all of you know your Bibles, but um, before the first book of Samuel is a little, bit, a little book called the book of Ruth, um, about a lady called Ruth and uh, Naomi, her mother-in-law. And um, if, if you are interested in the background and the context, which is important really for us to know, at the end of the book of Ruth, the very last little section uh, in chapter 4, verses 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22, there's a little family tree. And at the end of it, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So David's family tree is there in the book just before. But there's another bit of context, I suppose, as well, and that is the book before Ruth is the book of Judges. And you probably know some of those famous judges, like Samson um, and Gideon, you're probably familiar with. Um, And the time of the Judges was a time when there was really no leader, no king, no ruler in the land of Israel. And so these men called judges or leaders, God raised up from time to time to keep things a little bit in order. But it was a time of what we today would call anarchy, I would say. There was was very little law. There was a lot of lawlessness. We're told everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And so we're coming to a part of the story of God's people and the story of God's purposes, which actually is very important. It's almost like a pivotal moment. There have been difficult times before. There are going to be difficult times ahead, but there are going to be some really good times and some important times. And um, if you know the book itself, 1 Samuel, again, it's a long book, lots of history, but it starts with the prayer of a woman called Hannah. And she goes into the tabernacle and she prays silently like that. You can't hear anything, but her mouth, her lips are moving. And you may know the story. She's praying for a son because she's not able to have children. She's even been mocked and ridiculed by um, another wife that her husband has because she has children and and Hannah can't. And, And Samuel is the boy, the baby boy that she prays for, that God gives her. So the book of Samuel is about already somebody who's a very special person who was prayed for. And the other thing I suppose to say before we just um, move into this chapter is that um, in this chapter we're going to see about uh, David being anointed as king. That's the heading in the ESV here, David anointed king. Um, In a way, this was not what God wanted because he said to the people, I'm your king, you've got my laws. They had that, you know, the, the Ten Commandments and all that. But they wanted a king because they wanted to be like the other nations around them. They didn't just want God, they wanted a human king. And in the end, God agrees that he will do that. So we come into this chapter, and I suppose when I read a chapter like this, and um, in the middle of the chapter there's uh, all these sons of um, Jesse come, and um, there are... There are eight in total, you see. There are seven sons and then 
David comes along as well. And it, it just struck me, this is about a family. And, and families like this one come in all shapes and sizes. Now, most of you here, I don't really know. I hardly know you. I know a few people, a little. But what I definitely don't know is about your families. I mean, I mean that's not true. I do know about some people's families. I've met some woodcrafts in other places, for example. But I don't really know about your family, and you probably don't know too much about mine. I'm going to tell you something about mine, though. I'm one of eight children in our family. So when I read this about, about Jesse with his eight sons, I think, oh, yeah, big family. It would be regarded as that today. Um, and some of you know what big families are like, and they're not always great, let's be honest. And... Um, there's a, there's a place later on, we'll refer to it maybe briefly, where um, they're none too happy with David because he steps a bit out of line as far as they're concerned because he's the youngest and the youngest should stay in their place, shouldn't they? Well, I was number five out of our eight, so I was sort of in the middle. Older sisters, younger sisters and brothers. Well, we won't go into that too much. But, but this is a family story. And actually, you know, that's a good thing for us to say right at the start, that... God uses families. He uses relationships. He uses people who already know each other, already live together, work together, um, maybe they're friends. One example of that is, you know the story later on in David's life, was his friendship with Jonathan, who was King Saul's son. And it was a very special friendship, very warm friendship. And God used that to help and encourage David in difficult times. So families matter to God. And here's a family story, but in a way, it's a family story with a difference. And in God's story here in the Bible, there are families where things work well, and there are families where things don't. And actually, we know that already. If you, if you know the Bible story here, you've got um, Jacob and his 12 sons, and um, uh, you've got Joseph, haven't you, who... Um, has dreams, and he has these dreams where his brothers are going to be bowing down to him. And we know that was true. That was true when he went to Egypt, and um, there was famine, and they went there, and they had to come, and they had to plead for some food, and he tells them who he is. Well, you know the story. That's not our story tonight. But the point is families differ. They're all different, and, and, and families have problems and trouble, and God knows that. And... Um, there's no perfect family, is there, on the face of the earth? And certainly this family wasn't. And um, most of the families you read about, um, Old and New Testament, there's some tensions between them. Well, that's the kind of world we live in. So, what can we learn from this chapter? It's only part of the chapter. There's much more um, after it in the story. But we'll, we'll just go up to verse 13. And I'm going to suggest there are five things. I hope that's not too many for a Sunday evening. Five things that we can learn. They'll have to be brief or we'll be here all night. And um, if you just, I don't know, some of you are making notes and that's good. Um, I'll give you some headings as we, go, as we go through. But basically, I'm going to learn, we're going to learn one thing from verse 1. And then from verses 2 to 5. Then 6 and 7, 8 to 10, and 11 to 13. So we're going to go through and, and just see a lesson from each little section of the passage here. So let's, let's start that with, with verse 1. Let me read it to you again. The Lord said to Samuel, 
How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now, again, I'm, I'm assuming that you know, and if not, let me tell you anyway, briefly, the story of Saul. Uh, the people wanted a king. God said to Samuel, they shouldn't be wanting a king. They've got me as their king. But they wanted to be like the nation. So God, God does this. He sometimes uses our weaknesses, even our sinful, wrong desires, and he uses them to bring good and to bring glory to himself. And he does that. He says, all right, I'll give them a king. He tells them this king isn't necessarily going to be the kind of king they want, but they're going, they're going to have a king. And, and the person that God has chosen is Saul. And now this bit I can't illustrate. He is like head and shoulders above everybody else. He's a very impressive man physically. And he's very strong. In fact, he turns out to be a very good soldier. And in those days, as in other times, even in our own history in this country, uh, one of the key things about being a king or a leader is to be able to fight battles. And that's what he could do. So Saul has been chosen, but he disobeys God again and again. He turns away from God. He's not willing to submit his life to God. And so God says at the beginning of this passage, I have rejected him from being king over Israel. And you know, God is rebuking Samuel here. Samuel's doing something very natural. He is very sad about how Saul has turned out. Now, we might be like that about our leaders sometimes. <laughs> Prime ministers or cabinet ministers or leaders in industry or whoever they may be, sporting heroes, and something goes badly wrong in their lives. And it, we feel gutted. Why has that happened to somebody who I thought was going to be a good leader, a good star of some kind, and something's gone horribly wrong in their lives, and we feel down about it. Now, Samuel was like that with, with Saul. He had anointed him. He'd been very much involved in him becoming king. And Saul, in a way, has failed to be faithful to God. But God rebukes him. He says, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. That was a, 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 like a ram's horn, a curved uh, horn, which they used to, to, uh, with olive oil in it. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So the, the first point I want to say, the first lesson is this, that we need to take heed of this. He's saying to Samuel, leave the past, look to the future. Leave the past, look to the future. Now, to me, actually, that's a very practical and useful lesson. Right there, all in verse 1, isn't it? Stop grieving. It's not that it was wrong to grieve, but the time for that has come to an end. And now I'm going to send you to anoint a new king, and that's going to be the future. So it's a very practical lesson, isn't it? Sometimes, and, and it may be grief, and, and it's, it's right and proper that we grieve if, if we're bereaved, or if something changes in our lives and we've lost something, maybe it's a job that we had, or a home, or a family member, or just something we were enjoying doing, something that was going well, and it comes to an end, um, possibly not of our choosing. We feel down about it, and, and that's fine. It's good. It's right to grieve. But there will be a time, won't there, when we need to move on. I was thinking of that passage in Ecclesiastes 3, which says, a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time 
uh, to mourn, but there's a time to, to dance. There's a time to weep, but there's a time to laugh. And so um, God is saying to him then, and I think he's saying to us now, there's a time when we, we leave the past. Now, we need to honour the past. Um, I was just saying to somebody earlier, we called on a, um, a friend who we've known for a long time on the way here, and we were talking a little bit about the past. Um, and it's lovely to do that. You look back and you think of the good times or whatever in the past. But you can't stay there. You can't live there. You have to move on. And the great thing about God in the Bible is he's always looking ahead, always looking to the future. Even for us now, we're, we're Christian people here tonight, uh, worshipping God. And we need to think, what, what of the future? And, and for God, the future is always something which has hope in it. There's a Christian hope. And let me be very, very frank with you. Whatever age you are, you know that your life is going to come to an end one day. And God says, that isn't the end. There is a life beyond this life. And there's a judgment to come. And there's the, <clears throat> the fear that we should rightly have of the condemnation of God. There's heaven and hell put before us in Scripture. But what God says to us is, if you trust in Christ, you can hope for the future and that's not just a we hope so it's a real certainty that the future will be better that there's a life beyond this that when as many of you have you've been at a funeral of somebody who's trusted in christ their body's laid in the in the in the, uh, in the coffin in the ground or the body is cremated and you say but there's hope for the future because jesus has died and risen again so we don't need to mourn forever we grieve but we grieve as people who have hope so leave the past, he says to Samuel, and look to the future. And here's a clue about how important this is. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Who is this? Jesse from where? From Bethlehem. Now, you don't need to be a Christian or a churchgoer or a Bible reader to know something about Bethlehem, do you? It's the place where Jesus was born. So here we are in the first verse. We already know that though the past has been bad and Saul is still going to be around for a while and there's going to be conflict between Saul and David, um, God has a better plan. And his better plan in the end is going to come to fulfillment with Jesus being born in Bethlehem. So leave the past, look to the future. Secondly, from verse 2 to verse 5, Samuel comes up with a problem. Okay, so he's been told to go to Bethlehem to see Jesse. And Samuel says, how can I go, verse 2, if Saul hears it, he will kill me. Well, Samuel's, um, if you like, Saul's uh, uh, mentor in a way. He's, he's had to deal with him a lot. He's his servant, of course, because he's a, he's a prophet. Uh, the king is the king. Uh, but he's somebody who has supported Saul in his kingship. And uh, he's sad that Saul's kingship has come to an end. But he can't go to Saul and say, um, I'm about to anoint someone else as king. That's not going to go down well. I mean, it wouldn't in any circle, would it? You know, you go to your boss and say, um, there's a new boss coming to take your place. He said, there is not. This is my job. And you probably haven't got the cheek or the folly to say that to somebody in that position. But, but he'd be a rival, he'd be a competitor. So Samuel says, I can't do it, he will kill me. And Saul was a man who um, 
Some people think actually he had maybe some sort of emotional, we might call it a, a mental health condition, that he sometimes got really angry, just, just spontaneously got angry. Remember that time he tried to kill David, threw a spear at him? David had to play his harp to, to soothe him down. And, and I'm not saying that wasn't a spiritual thing or a wrong thing, but, but maybe he was just a very moody person. Some of us are like that. You know, it's just something will trigger off, and Samuel's afraid of that. He says, if Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And then God says to him this, take a heifer with you, a young uh, calf, and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So it's as if um, God has a solution. So what I want to say in this, these few verses is this. Um, God has his own ways to overcome our fears and our weaknesses. God has his own ways to overcome our fears and our weaknesses. So, so God says to Samuel, leave the past, look to the future. Here's what I'm going to do. And Samuel says, hold on, I've got a problem. That isn't going to work. I'm going to be in trouble. God says, okay, I understand. He doesn't dismiss it. He says, here's a way to sort it. And, and the way that it actually happens, uh, he takes this heifer, he sacrifices, he invites um, Jesse to come, and uh, the elders of the city come out and they say, uh, do you come peaceably? They're obviously concerned because Samuel's a very powerful man in the land. And um, he says, peaceably, I come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, come with me to the sacrifice. He consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. In other words, it went okay. He didn't, wisely, go to Bethlehem and say, I'm here to anoint a new king. That message would have got back to Saul very quickly. He says, I'm here to sacrifice. So God gives him wisdom, if you like. There's a way forward. And, and, and what I want to apply that to us today is this, that we, we are naturally anxious um, about things in the future. I mean, all of us are at times. And again, it depends on your temperament. Some people are more anxious than others. But if you're a Christian and trusting in God, then Paul says in Philippians, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Philippians 4, verses 6 to 7. And then he says, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will fill your hearts and your minds, guard your hearts in Christ. In other words, there is a way to be at peace over things that rightly will trouble you. We're not anxious about things that are easy. We're anxious about the unknown and the things where we feel maybe out of our depth. Jesus, Jesus actually says the same, doesn't he? Do not worry. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're going to eat and drink. What does he say? Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and God will take care of this. All those things will be provided for you. Now, that's a test of us. I mean... You know, we're in a, a situation in our nation where there's a, there's a virus that's spreading. Uh, there have been people uh, recently in the news whose homes have been flooded, sometimes not for the first time. Uh, you know that, you know, you can go on a visit to the doctor and have a, a blood test and something and, and there'll be some bad news. You could go to work. Um, I don't know what work some of you do, but you could be at work tomorrow and uh, something happens, or you get told something about your job or whatever, or family things, almost every day, isn't there something, you know, maybe in your family you hear about a problem. And it's easy for us to be anxious, but what, what Samuel is told in a way is, don't be anxious, here's a way 
forward. I mean, he tells him effectively to be um, a peaceful person, to be, if you like, a peacemaker. You know that in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers. You may be expecting trouble, but don't go looking for it, all right? Go peacefully and peaceably and, and try and calm things down if that's what's needed. Um, if he's confident in God and if he follows God's way, then God will provide for him. I mean, we often don't, do we? We have our own ideas. We say, oh, I've got a problem now. I need to sort it out. And we don't even think about what would God want me to do. And, and Samuel here follows God's advice. And it, and it works. Um, another scripture I thought of in this, um, with what Samuel does here, he goes and he's, he's very wise, isn't he? He's very careful. He doesn't reveal everything all at once. We don't have to do that. We don't have to tell everybody everything that we're doing. We must be truthful as Christians. We must have integrity. Um, we mustn't deceive people. But he doesn't have to go and explain everything that's happening. It reminds me of that scripture. Jesus says, um, be wise as serpents and innocent or harmless as doves. It's a good mixture, isn't it? Be, be wise, but be innocent. Be be people who are open and transparent. But you don't have to be foolish and say, well, this is what, this is what I believe. I've just got to say it. You don't have to say everything all the time. Um, think of Jesus himself. There were times when he withdrew from the crowd because he knew that if he stayed, there'd be trouble. Or even Paul. I often think about Paul. Um, he had some adventures as a, as a missionary, didn't he? He was, he was going taking the gospel. And there was one time when he knew there was a plot against his life. And they let, his, his friend let him down in a basket on the outside of the city wall. That wasn't, he wasn't facing his enemies, was he? In a way, he was running away, but that was wise. There was a time to stand and, and be in court, which he had too many times, but there were times when he said, that's not the wisest thing. I'm going to exit from this situation, and then we'll face things another day. So God has his ways to overcome our fears and weakness. Now, the third thing is, and we come really to, to the heart of the passage, in verses 6 and 7, we learn that God sees things differently from us. God sees things differently from us. And I do think this is really the heart of the passage. So they come to Bethlehem. Um, Jesse and his sons are there. They've sacrificed to God. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. So the Lord's anointed is a way of describing the king. The king was anointed with oil, olive oil. Um, they did that with the priests, you may know, back in, the, in Leviticus, the, the tabernacle, the temple when that was built. Uh, but they also anointed the one who was to be king. Um, and that is what he's going to do and he thinks that the Lord's anointed is before me. In other words, he thinks Eliab must be the one. Now, we're not given a description, but, but from the next verse you can tell what he was like. Because the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. So again, well built, strong. Um, if, if, um, if he was anything like um, Saul, who was very tall, he was a man who looked like a leader. He looked like a king, okay, physically. Um, but here's the problem, you see. We only see the outward. And Samuel is, is told here, as he looks at this man, the Lord says to him, do not look on his appearance, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord <coughs> looks on the heart. 
And that is a very sobering thing, isn't it, for us to have to think about. We, we see people and we, we make our minds up about them. And I guess we do that all the time. Um, I mean, let's not try to be too personal, but, you know, when you look at somebody, maybe when you meet them for the first time, you, you think things about them, don't you? You either, I mean, I'm not going to put words into your mouth, but you think, oh, oh, that person's very attractive or handsome, beautiful, whatever, or not. Sometimes you think, not. You think, oh, you know. Or what they're wearing. You think, oh, that's lovely, I like that. You think, whoa, what's she wearing that for? Or what's he got that on for? What? Oh, you know, wouldn't catch me wearing that. Whatever, we always have those thoughts about other people, and, and that's life, that's how we are. Um, but it's more than that, isn't it? It's not just people's appearance. You listen to how they speak, and you draw some conclusion, you know, whether they speak like you or not, and whatever you think is a good way to speak. They can either be too posh or too whatever. The opposite of that is. Or then you find out about people's job, and you think, oh, I see, right? Or the opposite, you think, wow, wow. That's what you do for a living, wow. You know, um, work for the civil service or something like that. You know, and you think, ooh, ooh. It just happened to be in the conversation before. Don't want to embarrass you, Alan. But, you know, you think, oh, civil service, work in London. Wow, very nice. Or, um, you know, I met somebody uh, the other day in Bedford for the first time. I knew, I knew this man's mother, and she said, oh, this is my son. And uh, I'm, I'm a, bit, a bit cheeky sometimes. I said, well, and what do you do for a living? She said, oh, I'm a builder. Oh, I thought, that's interesting. You know? I need a good builder. So you can have all kinds of reasons why you think things about people because of their job, their education, their occupation, their appearance, whatever it might be, or, or somebody's abilities. You listen to somebody playing the piano beautifully, or singing, or you see them act or something, or you whatever, and you think, oh, that's amazing. And those things are very natural. Nothing wrong with thinking about things like that. There's nothing wrong with being drawn to somebody or admiring somebody, or in a way, you know, feeling sorry for somebody, think, oh, that's a tough job. I wouldn't want to be doing that. Whatever, that's a very natural thing. But here's the point. God sees beyond that. God just doesn't see what we know about one another. He sees our hearts. And if you like, it's almost a definition of heart. The heart is what is invisible to other people. Unless you open your heart to somebody. We talk about that sometimes, don't we? Having a heart-to-heart where you open up about your deeper feelings and thoughts and desires and fears. God knows those things already. God sees the heart. And what we're told here in this passage is that Eliab, for all his outward, you know, being an impressive man, and Jesse's obviously a little bit proud of him, isn't he? You know, um, he's the first one, you know, that everybody notices. He's not the one God is going to choose. God says, I have rejected him. And then Jesse, like a good dad, proud of his sons, he calls Abinadab in verse 8 and made him pass before Sam. It's a bit like a beauty contest or, a, I don't know what, some parade. It's a bit embarrassing when you read about it. You think, oh, um, you know. But he does that. And so Aminadab comes... And, and Samuel says, uh, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then he made Shammah pass by 
Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons, I think that's seven in total, pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So what, what we're learning from that, I suppose, is simply this, that, that God sees differently. Jesse thought, these are, my, these are the top ones, you know, and if this one were, I'll go on, and he goes right through them, and, and God says, no, none of them. And this whole truth here is a very, it's a very searching thing. It is for me, even, you know, as a preacher, I come and I can speak to you, I can, I can read, I can study, I can prepare, but the Lord knows my heart. And the sad truth is, our hearts can be somewhere else. We can be doing all the right things outwardly, and our hearts can be not where God wants them to be. You know, we can be jealous of other people. We can have bitterness in our hearts. We can have wrong thoughts. We can have, Jesus talks about this, thoughts of anger and hatred. We can have lustful thoughts about other people. There's all kinds of things that can go on unseen. And, and I just think that's it's just a challenge for all of us. You know, how is your heart today? The, 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 the you that God sees but nobody else does. And, and that's why, by the way, Jesus, when he talks about prayer um, in Matthew 6, just before the Lord's Prayer, he says, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your heavenly Father who's in secret. And let me say, for, for me as a, as a preacher, I've been preaching and, and leading services and, and leading God's people for decades, longer than I care to, to, to imagine, I suppose, Often that's easier than having a right relationship with God myself. You can be okay in public and not okay in private with God. And that's really the test, isn't it? In fact, in fact if, we, if we're okay in public and we say, oh yeah, I'm all right, I love God, I trust God, but deep, deep down, we're just trying to pursue our own agenda. God hates that calls it hypocrisy saying one thing and actually believing and doing another and I'm not saying that these people here were hypocrites but I'm just saying that God sees beyond and that's a challenge for all of us God sees differently remember that and and be encouraged by that because when you're getting criticism from people or opposition from people who are not Christians or they're, or they're laughing at you or whatever if you want to do God's will then God sees your heart be encouraged by that God knows what you're like and if you're doing your very best to serve Jesus and follow him, or to love someone in your family who's not really responding as you'd like to, or to be a faithful person at work, or to work and if people are criticising you, or laughing at you, or making fun of you, yeah, it, it's hard, it gets us down. But it's God's approval we want, isn't it, first of all? And if God approves of us, if, God, if we're doing what pleases God, in one sense, that's a strong place to be in. Look, if you go to bed tonight, and when you put your head on the pillow, if you have a pillow, uh, and, and you know that your sins are forgiven by God because you're trusting in Jesus, then you can have a peaceful night. Or, or you say, well, I'm anxious about so-and-so. Well, ask God for help, like that Philippians 4 says. Don't be anxious. Tell him what your problems are. Tell him what's your mind. He promises he'll give you peace now, it's not complete peace that we just relax and everything's fine but it is a sense of knowing that God is with you and that God cares about you and God is shall I put this way God is with you he's on your side he's for you not against you that's what the great thing about being a Christian that we can say God is for us 
because he's given us his son, the Lord Jesus. That's how we know. We'll come to him in a moment. So that's the third thing. So leave the past, look to the future. God has his ways to overcome our fears and weaknesses. God sees things differently from us. And then we've touched on this almost already, but on verses 8 to 10, we find there, as um, Jesse goes through his sons, and in verse uh, 10, he says, the Lord has not chosen these. We find this truth, that it is God who chooses, and we are to submit to his will. Do you know, that's almost the toughest thing about being a Christian. What we're saying is, I am not, in the end, I am not in control of my life. God is. I have to submit to him. Now, that is not easy for anybody. It doesn't matter whether you just become a Christian or been a Christian for all your life. Um, it's not easy, actually, to say, not my will, but yours be done. Because I know, as a young man, I know what I wanted. There's a whole list of things I probably, if you sat me down at the age of whatever, 18 or something, and said, well, what do you want in life? I could tell you quite a few things. Well, God in his goodness has given me some of those things I wanted, but he's also taken me places and, and put me through things that I didn't want, I didn't ask for. So do I say, well, that's, that's a bit mean. <laughs> I might feel that sometimes. Some of you have probably been through bigger troubles in your life than I have, but I've seen plenty of people go through real hardship. And there's a lovely verse in Job. I think if I've got the verse right, it's chapter 2, verse 10 in Job, where he says, rebuking his wife, who's, who says to him, curse God and die. You know all the trouble that came on Job. And he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Are we just going to be fair-weather Christians and say, well, everything is everything's going fine, then I'll trust God. But when things are difficult, I don't want to know. That's not real faith and trust, is it? Trusting somebody is you, you follow them and you follow their ways even when it's hard. That's real trust. Even when you don't agree, as it were, you say, well, this doesn't seem right to me, but God says, this is the way I'm taking you. And, and that's hard. And, and that's something that, that happens here that we realise in this passage that is God who chooses. And it's quite an emphasis, isn't it? If, if you look at that in verse 8, Samuel says that. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9. Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 10. Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. His choice, not yours. Jesse wanted, and, and as parents, we, we do this, whatever our children are. We want them to be, you know, the best. You know, we want them to be chosen for the team. Right? We don't want them to be pushed to one side. We want them to get what they should have. We want things to be fair for them. And it's hard for us because we're very attached to them, maybe in our own way. Um, we want them to be important because we want to feel good about them. But God says here, he makes the choice. And when you think about that in this passage, and, and here we're coming, if you like, to the, the climax of this um, towards the end, um, God hasn't chosen Eliab or Abinadab or Shammah. He hasn't chosen any of those. We know he's going to choose David. But David is the youngest. David is the nobody. David is the one who, if you like, even their dad looks at them. He says, oh, oh yeah, forgot about him. In other words, God's ways are different from ours, and we need to learn that lesson. 
If God's making the choices, the choices won't be what we want. And you know the ultimate of that is Jesus. You know that prayer, don't you, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's looking at the cross and the suffering. And sometimes we look forward to something and we think that's going to be hard. You know, it can be something as ordinary as going to the dentist or something like that. Or it can be some uh, activity we have to do uh, and we know it's, it's going to be difficult. Maybe it's going to be painful. We don't look forward to it. Jesus was looking forward to the most intense suffering you could ever imagine. Physical suffering. Emotional suffering. Deserted by his followers, his disciples, his friends. Betrayed by one of them. Disowned by Peter. Some of you know what that's like when, when somebody who you thought was your friend, was with you, turns their back on you. I don't know him, said Peter. Jesus felt that. And worst of all, abandoned for that time as he felt on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was looking forward to that. And he did not say, here's an encouragement for you, when you feel anxious and you feel down, he did not say, bring it on. Right? He didn't, did he? He said, Father, if it's possible, take this away. I don't want it. And that's an amazing insight into the, the humanity of Jesus. That here he was in a perfect relationship with his heavenly father. And he realizes it's not his choice. His father has chosen a way for him that he doesn't want. And when you're following Jesus, when you're following God's way, as these people were wanting to do, it will not be your choice. But there's the question. Do we believe God's way is best? Or do you want to say, I'll do it my way? And Jesus is our best example because he, of all people, knew as much as you could possibly know about, about what was going to happen in the future. He knew what, what lay in front of him and he still was prepared to go. But he had to say this at the end of his prayer. He had to say, not my will but yours be done. In the end, he submitted. And that's, that's what's going to happen here. It's not their choice. Jesse wanted this son or that son. Even Samuel would have said, oh, he looks good. And God says, no. It's my choice. So let's come to that at the end. And here is what's um, encouraging. That actually, the whole thing about God choosing is the secret, it's the key to his purpose in salvation. Because he chooses the youngest and the least. But here is the one who is going to be our hope. So in verse 11, um, when uh, we think that the there's no hope left. There's nobody there. God hasn't chosen them. Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he says, there remains yet the youngest. And one possible translation, I think it may say in the, in the footnote, is um, the smallest. So David, is, he's, he's nobody. He's insignificant. He's a shorty, right? He's vertically challenged, we might say today, right? So he's not going to make an impressive leader. That's sort of what they think. Now, he's a young man. He probably was going to grow. Uh, but... but David is there, and he's not only the youngest and the smallest, but he's out doing the most boring job. He's keeping the sheep. He has to just stay with them, look after them. And you get that again. Um, you know, in the next chapter, you have that famous story of David and Goliath. And David is bringing the supplies for his brothers. He's basically almost their servant. He's almost like a, a kind of Cinderella, you know, does what they want. It's not a great position to be in. Maybe some of you have been the youngest in the family and you know, oh yeah, I get to do all that. But that's how, his, how he is. And yet, he is the one who God has chosen. God has chosen the least likely to accomplish his purposes. Why does he do that? He does it because the glory then will go to him and not to David. 
the glory will not go to, to, to stature, physical stature, or intellect, or any of those things. Because then people say, oh, we've done well. We've done well for God. We're never going to be able to say that. In fact, the Bible is full of this emphasis, you know it well, I think, of God being the one who initiates our salvation, right? If we were left to ourselves, we wouldn't even look for God. We wouldn't even want him. We'd say, I'm okay as I am. God has to give us that conviction of our need of of forgiveness. And God is the one who initiates that. He chooses us. He chose Abraham at the beginning. Abraham was was, uh, worshipping foreign gods, He wasn't worshipping the true God. And God speaks to him and says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to promise this descendants to you. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And and Abraham believes God. He trusts him. He has a big change in his life. Um, Or Moses. (laughs) I like Moses because he doesn't want to do the job that God's given him. He says, please send someone else. But God says, no, I've chosen you. And um, Moses had a a troubled start. You know, he was... He was uh, distrusted, mistrusted by his own people and um, by the Egyptians as well. But he's the one God has chosen. And and actually, as Christian believers, we we read, don't we, in Ephesians 1, God has chosen us. He chose us from before the foundation of the earth. So God choosing and making the choice, in the end, we realise, is the best thing. And he's chosen David. So here enters David, and this is like the climax of the story, and we'll... We'll, we'll finish with David because he is um, going to be the, the true star of the show, but not in the way that people think. He is going to be somebody who carries with him the promise of God. He is the Lord's anointed. So you have that. He gets sent and he comes. And he is physically attractive, actually, verse 12. Um, Jesse sends and has him brought in. He's ruddy and has beautiful eyes and is handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. By the way, I don't think they would have been too impressed, would they? There they were, presented by their father to this man of God, this prophet. And one by one he said, Not him, not him, not him. There's none of them less. They said, Well, what's going on? And then this little squirt of a lad is brought in. Tiny, let's call him. We don't know too much about his appearance, but, but you know, I think that with the story of Goliath, we're not looking at that, but you know it well. There's Goliath, a giant of a man, and here's David, and who is he? And Goliath mocks him, doesn't he? But he's using, if you like, God's weapons, God's strength, not human strength. So here's David, and he proves to be the one God is going to use. And there are lots of things here, and we can only just touch on them as we close. He's anointed with oil, the horn of oil, and he's anointed. And he's marked out amongst his brothers. He's going to be special. He's going to be chosen. He's going to be the one God uses. But can you get that? It's not because he's the strongest or the cleverest. It's just because God has chosen to use him. And the oil, without a doubt here, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. So in many places in Scripture, but you see that here. He's anointed with oil, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed or came powerfully upon David from that day 
forward, and Samuel uh, goes uh, on his way um, back uh, to his home. So I just want to encourage you to, to think about this, that, that here is um, the most unlikely person in the, in the drama, as it were, unfolded. He comes onto the stage, and God says he's the one. Now, roll forward. Maybe nearly 3,000 years, if I've got my dates right. And the kings, the three wise men, they come to Jerusalem. They say, where is the one who's born king of the Jews? They expect him to be in a palace. They expect him to be in Jerusalem. And they consult the scripture, oh, he's going to be in Bethlehem. So they go and they find Jesus in Bethlehem. And where is he? He's in an outhouse with the animals. And then think later on of um, uh, Jesus, and he comes and begins his ministry. And they say, who's this? Jesus, the carpenter? And he's from where? Nazareth, up in Galilee, in the north. I'm a southerner like maybe most of you are, I think. From the north? Surely not. Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's the attitude. He's a nobody. And he's not powerful. He's not, he's not even got a great following most of the time. And his disciples, they're a motley crew, and they argue amongst themselves. And even, even there in the early days of the church, Paul writes to the, the people at Corinth, he says, not many of you were mighty. Not many of you were, were influential people. You weren't of noble birth. God doesn't do that. And to make matters worse in, in the life of Jesus... Not only is he a carpenter and he walks around and he doesn't have a great retinue of soldiers and people like that, but at the end of his life, he suffers in the most horrible way. And for the Jews, you know, they thought, well, that, that's, he can't be God's promised Messiah because he's, he's died a, a death of shame. Cursed is everyone who hungs on a tree. So can you see, see the whole pattern of what God is doing in the Bible is to turn our values upside down and that is if, if, if you're not here tonight if you're not trusting in Christ then you're probably trusting in something else like your own ability or like the world's approval or whatever it might be Christ is the only one, Jesus is the only one who can take us into the presence of God, he may be the most unlikely saviour and rescuer but that's the one God has chosen. And he does it through the way we wouldn't choose, through suffering and through shame. And sometimes today, maybe we don't see it much here, but in many parts of the world, to be a Christian is a dangerous activity. To, to read your Bible, to worship with other people. We are not popular people. And everybody thinks, oh, we're great. I hope people do think well of you. If you're honest, if you're hardworking, if you're kind and loving, maybe people will. But when we say Jesus is the only way, that's not popular today. When we say there's judgment to come, that's not popular today. But we, if we're wise, will follow this man, Jesus. David's only a picture. And here's a reminder, by the way. We sang that, creating me a clean heart. David sinned. He was guilty of, I guess, the two most serious breaking of the Ten Commandments, murder and adultery. So David was never going to be our saviour. He was never going to be the one. He was pointing forward to Jesus. And thank God Jesus came. Without sin, without fault, with a perfect relationship with his heavenly father, and he suffered and died in place of me and in place of you. As we trust in him, we can know that he has saved us from our sin what a joy that is so there's a lot to learn from this family story and um, 
we, we've, we've learned many lessons. We leave the past, we look to the future. God will overcome, help us to overcome our fears and weaknesses. He sees things differently. Maybe that's the key, the heart of it. God sees the heart. And then God chooses, we submit to his will. And then it is the Lord's anointed who is our hope. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me encourage you as we close to put your faith and trust in him and in him alone. Well, we're going to sing.